Hi, everyone. In today's recording, Claire and I will chat about another of our favorite novels, Snow Country by Yasunari Kawabata. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that will help you transport your reader to another world. The quote of the day comes from Kawabata's Nobel Prize lecture, which he titled, Japan, the Beautiful and Myself. I've excerpted a few chunks from this that I really like and that I think are particularly applicable to Snow Country. I'm not going to explain them or add any commentary. I'll just read them. I think, though, that their relevance will become clear once Claire and I start talking about this book. This is what Kawabata says. In Zen, there is no worship of images. Zen does have images, but in the hall where the regimen of meditation is pursued, they are neither images nor pictures of Buddhas, nor are there scriptures. The Zen disciple sits for long hours, silent and motionless, with his eyes closed. Presently, he enters a state of impassivity, free from all ideas and all thoughts. He departs from the self and enters the realm of nothingness. This is not the nothingness or the emptiness of the West. It is rather the reverse, a universe of the spirit in which everything communicates freely with everything, transcending bounds, limitless. And the emphasis is less upon reason and argument than upon intuition, immediate feeling. Enlightenment comes not from teaching, but through the eye awakened inwardly. Truth is in the discarding of words. It lies outside words. And so we have the extreme of silence like thunder. And for more about Zen and this wonderful nothingness that he describes and silence like thunder, let's go into that chat about Snow Country with me and Claire. So here we are again. What's new? This is the witty banter segment. Um. <laughs> be witty. Okay, okay. I'll be witty now. There's nothing new in my life besides that I love winter, and I love early winter morning runs. Yeah, that's part of why we're reading Snow Country, I guess. Yes, because there's nothing greater than that really dark, bluish-purple sky, and there was a full moon. It was pretty amazing. Why on earth are you running? I don't know. I just... I tried it once, and the child in me shouted for joy. <laughs> that's, and how, that's how you treat your inner child, forcing her to go run? No, I was just interacting with nature and not just looking at it. Can't you lie down in the grass? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What else is new? Thanksgiving break is over, thank goodness. Children at school. <laughs> yes. Which is always good. Moods are high. <laughs> it's just um, our son is, he, uh, he wants the world, literally. He asks us stuff like, um, I want to go to the real world. He told me the other day, I only like impossible things. Yeah. <laughs> I've spent uh, many hours this week trying to save his turtle's life. <laughs> Going to turtle doctors, getting turtle medicine getting turtle x-rays spent the other portion of my very 
limited free time trying to force feed, <laughs> not literally, uh, mice and rats to his ball python, who for some reason has stopped eating. Yeah, Which is apparently sem- semi-normal, but... I have read that they go it's from November to like something, I don't know, March. It's, it's common for them to stop eating or to go long stretches. Just keep trying. So while you've been out there howling to the moon, connecting with your inner child through the snow country, I've been... Thinking about the snake. I've been uh, trying to keep reptiles alive. You, you generally have an anxiety I'm worried. about people not eating enough. I'm worried about that snake. It's got to eat. <laughs> it's got to eat. It's been... It's a young snake. It's already been almost three weeks. Keep trying. What can you do but keep trying? And on that note, uh, why are we talking about more books that have nothing to do with classes I'm teaching? Because we almost never get the chance to just sit down and talk about books we love together. Yeah, we've discovered this is really fun just to do for its own sake. And it forces us to read and, as you say, talk to each other about meaningful things. Actually sitting down and talking about them together reveals whole new things that we didn't know we knew. You are Claire Akebrand, author of (laughs) A Book of Poems, What Was Left of the Stars, and a novel, The Field is White, which is slightly more relevant today than usual because uh, this novel that we're talking about today was a model for you, was it not? Oh, yeah. So we're talking about Snow Country by Yasunari Kawabata, and is this your favorite novel? No. (laughs) <laughs> you really had to think about it, though, right? It it almost is. Yeah. Or it was for a long time. It would be definitely in the top top 20 for sure. Well, 20 is a lot. I thought it was like in the top three. Top 10, probably. <laughs> top nine? I don't like to make commitments. Top nine and a half? <laughs> um, you've read all of Kawabata's novels, haven't you? Yeah. And I haven't. I've only read one or two others. The Master of Go is a great, great book. Mm. I might like it even slightly more, but you love this novel far and above any of his other works, right? I do, yeah. The Sleeping Beauty is, is really, really good, too. They're, they were all beautiful, except the this... lake. The lake is very disturbing and awful. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot to talk about when it comes to this book. Maybe um, a brief, very brief plot summary. We will be spoiling the ending. I mean... The books we talk about aren't really the kind of books that can be spoiled. These aren't exactly thrillers or mysteries or detective novels. Yeah. But uh, so still finding out what happens in the end will by no means negate the power and pleasure of this novel. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So even though we will be revealing more or less the whole plot as our discussion unfolds, that um, we don't think that's a disservice. No, you don't read this book for the ending. You read it for the uh, reading. <laughs> well, I mean, in a way you do the ending is the best part, but. Not because of plot, really. Mm. So Shimamura, there's a man from Tokyo whose name is Shimamura and comes to a small hot spring village on the northwest coast of Japan. This coast of Japan is notorious for, I think at its latitude, it gets the most snowfall of any other place in the world, which is why it's called in Japan, the snow country. And there are hot spring towns, um, you know, in this place. And the book is actually about three visits that he pays to this town. The first... He meets this geisha named Kamako. Second, he comes back, they reunite, and then he goes back home. And then the third, he comes back two years later. And yeah, it's this kind of prolonged relationship that they have. Do we need to say anything else about the plot? No. I do want to say that, I mean, to enjoy this novel fully, you have to let go of certain cravings or expectations of what fiction, at least Western fiction, 
usually is or does. Yes. I mean, the characters... Developments. <laughs> yeah, developments. It's not... Yeah, developments. Plot, <laughs> plot developments. It's very static in terms of plot. And the characters cannot be discussed in conventional terms, I think. No. And their personalities are ephemeral. Their inner lives are inaccessible to us. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. The plot is, I mean, this is true in many Western novels as well, but the plot is not told chronologically, nor is it told with any great care to signal what's happening when and in what order. Yeah. So it can all feel like a slightly muddled dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should talk about the start because the start makes it clear that the novel you're about to read is intentionally a slightly muddled dream. The first sentence of this novel is, the train came out of the long tunnel into the snow country. Reading about this book, I learned that this is slightly not an accurate translation. Apparently, it would be more accurate to say, quote, passing through a long tunnel at the border, there was the snow country. So the word train is not in the first sentence in Japanese. There's no I, there's no narrator, there's no character, there's no he or she saw the snow country, none of that. Mm. Passing through a long tunnel at the border, there was the snow country. Mm. I think this difference is important because it, it destabilizes us right from the beginning. Interesting. Where are we? What are we on? Passing how? What tunnel? Through what tunnel? Death to afterlife. <laughs> exactly. It's immediately... Surreal. Surreal and opaque. Interesting. And we don't know who we are. Why are we making this passage? You know? It's kind of just this pure perspective or impression of movement into a new place. Wow, that is a significant difference. And even the snow country, yeah, this is, I think, a semi-technical name for a region in Japan, but it does have the sound of this, like, mystical, almost Narnia-like realm, Mm -hmm. you know? For sure. We're now moving into a fantasy world. I know how much you love the first train scene, so what else about the first train scene signals that this is a semi-fantasy world? He He's sitting there, and there's a woman he's watching, a younger woman, taking care of a man who's sick. He can see her reflection in the in his window, and at some point, the, the evening sun is right in her face, and she becomes superimposed onto the landscape. It's this really beautiful, extremely surreal moment where a human becomes one with nature. It's, I mean, it's literal, but it feels very surreal. It's even slightly more layered than that, because initially he's looking at the window and it's covered with steam, and then he makes one line through the steam with his finger, and in that line he can see her eyes. Oh, right. Remember? So he's seeing her through the reflection of the window. After he's cleared the steam away, he's only seeing a part of her face. Yeah, so... The beginning train scene signals that we are entering a world that is phantasmal Mm. and subjective and that reality cannot be accessed. I think that's a clear implication that reality, the real world, whatever is the real world, cannot be accessed. And instead, we're we're entering a novel that is like a hall of mirrors. Mm -hmm. And these mirrors are mirrors of perspective or subjectivity or individual dreams or wishes or desires that, you know, in no way bear factual relationship to how these people really are it says too that his his heart aches at the inexpressible beauty of it as he's watching the woman specifically melt into the landscape and i think that becomes really significant for the rest of the novel 
where people do seem to be a part of the landscape. I'm thinking specifically of this other woman that he already has a relationship with, sort of. She, he often is uh, surprised um, by the coldness of her hair. He even says, I've never felt such cold hair. At some point, he describes it as a wet, cold stone for black hair. And that's another one of those instances where nature and humanity become one. She becomes part of the landscape. She's cold as the snow country. So here are some passages where this happens in that initial train journey. The mountain sky still carried traces of evening red. Individual shapes were clear far into the distance, but the monotonous mountain landscape, undistinguished from mile after mile, seemed all the more undistinguished for having lost its last traces of color. There was nothing in it to catch the eye, and it seemed to flow along in a wide, unformed emotion. That was, of course, because the girl's face was floating over it. Cut off by the face, the evening landscape moved steadily by around its outlines. The face, too, seemed transparent, but was it really transparent? Shimomura had the illusion that the evening landscape was actually passing over the face, and the flow did not stop to let him be sure it was not. A bit later it says, It was then that a light shone in the face. The reflection in the mirror was not strong enough to blot out the light outside, nor was the light strong enough to dim the reflection. The light moved across the face, though not to light it up. It was a distant, cold light. As it sent its small ray through the pupil of the girl's eye, as the eye and the light were superimposed one on the other, the eye became a weirdly beautiful bit of phosphorescence on the sea of evening mountains. So there's this fluidity between landscape and people, mm -hmm. subjectivity and objectivity, near and far, yeah. light and dark. In fact, the whole novel, is, I think you could argue, is built on this kind of fusion of opposites. Time and space, men and women, heat and cold, light and dark, mm. Tokyo and uh, the snow country, the city and nature, yeah. fire and snow. Yeah. I mean, is this simply stylistic? So what? I mean, so what that it's it has all these opposites? I mean, what is the point or implication or significance of that? You get the sense that an argument's being made about how all things are one. None of the characters are just one thing. They're all part of each other, and hmm. nature is full of danger and safety and beauty and the ugly. I mean, there's such beautiful descriptions of the snow country. And we also have Shimamura watching um, bugs die in front of him. It's a very uh, kind of creepy, creepy passage. I'm trying to think of what some other ugly images are. I mean, Shimamura well, himself is sort of an ugly person. I don't mean physically, but... Well, there's that moment when Kamako's lips are described as two leeches. Oh, I'm so glad you remembered that. Yes, that was that's a good one. So what's the significance of that in relation to this oneness idea? Yeah, ugliness exists within beauty and vice versa. The characters in this novel all kind of intermingle with each other or are versions of each other or are projecting themselves onto each other. Yes. And also the, the fact that the novel isn't told chronologically. We get the second visit to the Hot Springs town mm -hmm. and then our memory of the first and then we so get the in third. The summer. You're back in the summer, you mean? Yeah, that's right. So, And then the seasons don't really go in order. Yeah. Time seems to be kind of circular, or not linear at least, mm -hmm. and even space at the very end of the novel, which we'll get to, space kind of collapses in on itself. Oh. By space, I mean outer space. 
Yes. So yeah, uh, there is that sense that things are constantly collapsing inwards towards each other. It seems like the boundaries between objects and people and events and time and places don't exist, right? So I, again, I don't claim to be an expert or even an amateur student <laughs> of, of Zen philosophy or religion, but it does come up in Kawabata's Nobel lecture. So we know that we know that it's a way of thinking about the world that highly influenced this book. How would you describe Shimamura? He has a family. He has a wife and kids. Why is he going to this hot spring town in the first place? Is that ever clear? Well, there is a passage that mentions that it's common for men his age to be visiting places like these. And it seems to be socially acceptable, too, for them to visit geishas. Well, I think that this is in the introduction. Oh, maybe that's what it was. The introduction is written by um, Edward Seidensticker, who also translated this novel. This is what he says in the introduction about this. The special delights of the hot spring are for the unaccompanied gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess says a lot. Hmm. He goes on to say, no prosperous hot spring is without its geisha and its compliant hotel maids. I'll keep reading because this is relevant. If the hot spring geisha is not a social outcast, she is perilously near being one. The city geisha may become a celebrated musician or dancer, a political intriguer, even a dispenser of patronage. The hot spring geisha must go on entertaining weekend guests, and the pretense that she is an artist and not a prostitute is often a thin one indeed. Yeah. So he's going to this hot spring town for whatever reasons unaccompanied gentlemen go to such hot spring towns in the snow country of Japan. Yeah. She's not officially a prostitute, but she's not exactly an artist either. Mm. How would you describe her? Well, one of the women in the book does uh, say that she's quite good at playing the, uh, what, what is it called again? The samisen, or just the stringed instrument, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And she sings for Shimamura, and, and it sounds beautiful. I mean, she does seem to be talented. Mm. But yeah, she's a deeply dissatisfied, tragic sort of character. She's always very often drunk, which is unsettling. So... Yeah, in many ways she's immature, but, you know, that's probably because she's basically a kid. <laughs> um, and he's middle-aged. and Well, she's trapped in every possible way a person can be trapped. There's every reason to understand her emotional dysfunction. Exactly. Yeah, and the fact that she's always drunk is kind of this really um, scary and sad foreshadowing of what her the rest of her life's going to look like. It doesn't seem like she has any prospects of changing her life. She lives a life devoid of meaning. Yeah, and she uh, self-medicates with alcohol. We skipped over Shimamura maybe too quickly. He is married with kids but comes to these hot springs as an unaccompanied gentleman. We know nothing about his kids or his wife, which says a lot about him <laughs> as a character. He doesn't yeah. think about them. He doesn't think about them. Who, who is he as a person? I really don't think we are supposed to be charmed by him in any way. I can relate to his sense of longing and his, the way he builds up these fantasy worlds for himself. But beyond that, I just, there, there's a few places where he's kind of described as plump, which I thought was interesting. At some point, Komako runs, but he can't because he's too plump. I, so, it's clear that he's um, a wealthy kind of lazy. Um, he inherited lots of money. Yeah. From his father. He's a lazy, comfortable person. And pro professionally, his professional life is also extremely strange and vapid. 
Yeah. He's a scholar of dance, but instead of studying Japanese dance, he studies Western ballet, although he's never actually seen one. Yeah. And he doesn't even want to see one because he's afraid of it's like this line from Keats, heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. I think he he refuses to live in the real world and wants to preserve this kind of fantasy about Western ballet. Mm-hmm. As it as he thinks it might be in his mind. Yeah, and that's his and that I think is the exact approach he has to the snow country and to these two women in the book, Komako and this other very mysterious Yoko, which he sees on the train yeah. in the beginning. He wants to have romance in his life, but there's a distance that he seems to create between those things and him. Like these women are literally well, especially Kumak, she literally throws herself in front of him all the time. She weeps the first time she sees him again after a year of not having seen him. And she is such a human compared to him. She's always she's always crying <laughs> and uh, vulnerable in so many ways, but he uh, he keeps his distance. He doesn't seem to want to really experience that just the same way he doesn't actually want to see a ballet. Do you know what I mean? I think that's the, that's really all we know about him. All we are told about him is that he, I think the mirror image at the beginning of the book is really important. Every object in the world is a mirror in which he sees a reflection of himself. He doesn't care about ballet for the sake of ballet. He wants his own fantasy of it. He doesn't care about the women for the sake of them as individuals. He doesn't yeah. care about the landscape. I mean, every once in a while, the landscape will thrust itself upon him and force itself to be noticed, and he's kind of startled by its beauty. But these instant, these moments are only brief and come in flashes and don't last, mm. don't have any lasting effect on his psyche. Seemingly, yeah. I'm reading this book now by Harold Bloom. It's the last book he wrote. It's called Take Arms Against a Sea of Troubles. And in it, he has this wonderful quip about Wordsworth, <clears throat> who's, you know, my favorite poet after Shakespeare. Harold Bloom says that before Wordsworth, poems had subjects, and after Wordsworth, they have subjectivity. And this reminds me a lot of uh, Shimamura, where he's trapped inside of his subjectivity and doesn't see the world as the, as what it is. Yeah, it's mirrors. Sometimes I, I wonder if he's out shopping for things to recollect in tranquility later, you know what I mean? <laughs> well... One of my frustrations with reading this book is that he doesn't. You say that he wants romance, and he certainly acts as if he does. Well, he goes and who visits these geishas. The ballet, you know what I mean? Right, but he never. We never see an interior moment where he expresses a desire for romance, a desire for anything. He never says verbally to Kamako, "I love you" or "I want to love you." He's, he's kind of slightly robotronic and yeah. hollow, totally hollow. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's hard to tell if this is one of those situations where he's just a hardened city person or if he's depressed or if he simply is not capable of feeling things deeply, if he prefers to have a cold, distant relationship with with things. There's this wonderful bit where Kamako tells him that she keeps a diary and in the diary she records all of the books that she reads. And he says, what do you mean? Like your criticisms of them? And she says, no, just, you know, the characters and the plot and what I can remember what happens in the books. And he says to her, well, this seems like a waste of effort. And maybe he's right. I mean, we have to ask what is the purpose of this or what she's getting out of it. But it does show a remarkable lack on his part of inner. I mean, it displays that Kamako is capable of reflection. Of witnessing, simply witnessing. Yeah, I like that too. 
and that he has no such impulse or understanding. So they don't really fall in love. They kind of talk with each other, but past each other always. Mm-hmm. They make no meaningful connection. They don't even really seem to want to be in love with each other. Do you think that's true? She might not want to specifically be in love with Shimamura, but she certainly seems like she's very lonely and she's looking right. for human connection. I mean, she wants meaning, and that human connection is, of course, a big part of that. She has no, you know, like I say, she's trapped. By people who are using her when she wants to. Well, yeah, this is a kind of indentured servitude. And so she wants freedom and escape and meaning. Love is a part of that, but she doesn't want Shimamura in particular, there's nothing about him that appeals to her, is there? We don't know. There's it, there's never a moment where we get any sense of her desiring something specifically about him. But I think he, if he was a different, warmer sort of person, she right. maybe could fall in love with him. Everything about the way she acts tells us that she knows it's all just transitory. Here's a wonderful little passage where she plays to him on this instrument called, I think, a samisen. Again, I don't know how to pronounce that exactly. It's the stringed instrument. Is a description of her playing and Shimamura's reaction. A chill swept over Shimamura. The goose flesh seemed to rise even to his cheeks. The first notes opened a transparent emptiness deep in his entrails, and in the emptiness the sound of the samisen reverberated. He was startled, or better, he fell back as under a well-aimed blow, taken with a feeling almost of reverence, washed by waves of remorse, defenseless, quite deprived of strength, there was nothing for him to do but give himself up to the current, to the pleasure of being swept off wherever Kamako would take him. She was a mountain geisha, not yet twenty, and she could hardly be as good as all that, he told himself. And in spite of the fact that she was in a small room, was she not slamming away at the instrument as though she were on the stage? He was being carried away by his own mountain emotionalism. Kamako purposely read the words in monotone, now slowing down and now jumping over a passage that was too much trouble. But gradually she seemed to fall into a spell. As her voice rose higher, Shimamura began to feel a little frightened. How far would that strong, sure touch take him? He rolled over and pillowed his head on his arm, as if in bored indifference. The end of the song released him. Ah, this woman is in love with me. But he was annoyed with himself for the thought. It's a beautiful passage. This phrase, bored indifference, strikes me as particularly apt. You know, that, that characterizes his entire attitude. More, I think more that's from beginning to end. Oh my gosh, every time I get to that place, um, I think of that uh, episode in Cheers where Fraser, what's her name? The woman that he ends up marrying. She's a therapist anyway. She's Lilith. Like, Lilith, yeah, she's like, if I have to talk to one more man about how he's bored <laughs> and somehow not satisfied. <laughs> she's a therapist, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, comfortable men who have no real problems, but just uh, with being bored and dissatisfied. Well, I have a question that's related to that, though. I mean, yeah, it is a cliche, and I get Lilith's <laughs> <laughs> wonderful Cheers reference. I get Lilith's complaint about this if I have to talk to one more rich man who's bored. Although, I kind of want to stand up for bored rich men. People need meaning in life. And I think lots of people think that money will give them meaning. Yeah. And then when they achieve it, they find out that it doesn't. So there's this crisis. You know, they realize that they still have no meaning in their lives. Hmm. So I won't, I've been, when I was rereading this book this time, I, I kept asking myself, is the basis of this book a kind of nihilism? 
does this book argue implicitly that there is no meaning to be found? Love is an illusion. Love is unachievable. Um, connection is impossible. The universe is vast and cold and dark. We are like little bugs. I mean, there's that moment when maybe I'll read it and then keep asking my question. So this is referring to Shimomura. He spent much of his time watching insects in their death agonies. Each day as the autumn grew colder, insects died on the floor of his room. Stiff-winged insects fell on their backs and were unable to get to their feet again. A bee walked a little and collapsed, walked a little and collapsed. It was a quiet death that came with the change of seasons. Looking closely, however, Shimomura could see that the legs and feelers were trembling in the struggle to live. For such a tiny death, the empty eight-mat room seemed enormous. As he picked up a dead insect to throw it out, he sometimes thought for an instant of the children he had left in Tokyo. So the, we are like these dead tiny bugs. I mean, they're explicitly compared to his children. We are like these dead tiny bugs in this enormous vast universe that doesn't care about our lives that are all too brief and end quietly and uneventfully. Mm. Is that the argument of this book, that nothing matters? We're born, nothing matters, we die, that's it? <laughs> no. Well, yes. I think both, um, both that nihilistic uh, approach, but also, which this is what makes this book so beautiful and life-affirming to me, it also argues the exact opposites, that our lives, you know, like, it seemed like such a large space for such a tiny death. Yeah. But then at the end, when the Milky, where Milky Way roars into him and becomes part of him, suddenly all of that space seems proportionate to the feelings we are capable of feeling. Oh, you must expand on this, but just so that people know what you're talking about. At the end of this book, there's this big fire. A theater has caught on fire, and they're all watching the fire. And for several pages near the end of this book, the Milky Way is evoked and repeated and repeated, and Shimomura is staring at it and can't believe how bright it is and how large it is. It even becomes this kind of musical refrain I noticed this time around. The Milky Way, the Milky Way. They keep saying it. The Milky Way, the Milky Way. Mm. And uh, there's this kind of scene of panic in this burning theater. Kamako kind of runs up to save Yoko or to kind of, kind of pull Yo Yoko, who has been caught in these flames, out of the fire. And here are the last three small paragraphs of the book. The crowd found its various voices again. It surged forward to envelop the two. Keep back, keep back, please, he heard Kamako's cry. This girl is insane. She's insane. He tried to move toward that half-mad voice, but he was pushed aside by the men who had come up to take Yoko from her. As he caught his footing, his head fell back, and the Milky Way flowed down inside him with a roar. So it's an extremely wonderful sentence, this final sentence. Mm. But elaborate, please, on your, uh, your claim about it being proportionate to emotions. He's obviously, this is a dramatic moment because uh, the fire and the panic of people, you know, they're literally throwing children out of the windows um, to save them. And then Yoko is flung towards him <laughs> from a window. And, you know, the shock of all of that and the terror one is capable of feeling in this life, I think is beautifully represented in that moment where he loses his footing looking up at space and all of space it's seemingly all of space flows down into him violently with a roar it's as if 
feeling that terror or the shock of this fire and the images and all of that, it's as if he's become open, open to that kind of reception. He's now able to, he's human enough in that moment, moment to become one with all of space. It's his pain and not his indifference that has made him mm. able to... So finally he's not a mirror, but he's an open vessel. And the the boundary, you know, because I was saying this weird thing about him not really seeing the landscape, not really seeing the women, but just seeing kind of reflections of himself or projections of himself onto these people. Right, like like with the ballet, he's not actually, he's never actually seen it. He reads about it and he enjoys it from a distance. Same with these women and this landscape. But now finally he's open and the outer world is landing inside of him in a way that it has never done before. Yes. So instead of going through the world projecting himself onto it, it is forcing itself into him. Yeah. With a roar, you know, this kind of violent. And I think it's meaningful that um, it's a cinema, right? It's a theater that burns. Well, not only that, but it's the film, the film strips themselves that catch on fire. It's incredible. Um, and that Yoko, like a character out of a movie, jumps out as if she jump as it's as if she's jumping out of a movie or a story or a ballet. You know what I mean? Out of a theater. I mean, yeah, literally. She jumps out of that fictional world or fantastical world right into mortality, and it's that moment where he becomes is completely confronted with mortality like that that he becomes a vessel for this huge experience he sees her leg twitch and it's this leg twitch she lands she's clearly dead or dying and her leg kind of spasms and he focuses on this detail and repeats it to himself several times the spasming of this leg this Mm. dying woman and uh he's it makes him vulnerable in a way that the women maybe have always been but he never has been you Mm. know it rends him in a way and and finally the vast beauty but terror of space literally floods him and i am not quite sure why but to me it seems like this hugely redemptive moment i view this as uh, as an extremely positive slash glorious really experience yeah so, i don't think so, it's fear or terror necessarily well it must be terror i mean it, it enters him with a roar it's but not necessarily bad terror i mean i'm actually yeah. the more i think about it the more i'm I'm surprised at how many similarities there are between this book and, say, the Romantic Poets yes. in English, whom I yes. love, Wordsworth in particular. Like, you know, sublime beauty is terrible in its mm. vastness and its uh, ability to crush us. I mean, yes. That's one thing that attracts it to us, mm-hmm. attracts Absolutely. us to it. Wordsworth has this wonderful, I'm not going to say belief, but uh, reverence for the human mind. I mean, for example, at the end of the prelude, Wordsworth is talking to Coleridge, and he says to Coleridge that it's the job of poets. Poets instruct them, their readers, instruct them how the mind of man becomes a thousand times more beautiful than the earth on which he dwells. Above this frame of things, in beauty exalted as it is itself of substance and of fabric more divine. So uh, I love your comment about the cosmos is commensurate or human emotions, the human mind, the human psyche is commensurate with the vastness of the cosmos, mm. can actually contain the vastness of the cosmos, Yeah, is as vast, you know, our interiority as a, is as large as space. Yeah, You see this as redemptive, so you think that Snow Country 2 
if there was a sequel to this book, Shimamura would have learned something. You think there's a kind of signal of moral progress, evolved character, something good that is that is lasting happens to him, you think? That's hard to say. We have these uh, huge but also not long-lasting conversions. <laughs> That's right. Which there's, is tragic in and of itself, right? But I don't know. I I would like to think that maybe maybe has become more uh, more aware of the actual lives of these women that he kind of toys with and that he uses. Maybe his eyes are slightly more opened. I don't know. I don't think he's going to stop coming to these places, you know, to uh, help his boredom. But maybe, maybe the dis. Okay, if nothing else, maybe the distance between him and reality has been shortened. Mm. Which is not nothing. Right. He's coming from a very, very, very deep ennui. I mean, maybe that is our, our, the best, the closest that you and I could come to understanding this idea of nothingness and Zen. I mean, I, I kind of want to read. Maybe this experience, if nothing else, plants a seed. And I, I think a lot over a lifetime of experiences like this, where we feel sudden extreme connections with nature or with other people, they add up and then uh, you sort of reach a point maybe where it's impossible impossible to deny the meaning of life or it's impossible to say that life has no meaning because you have you have this collection of moments where you were proven otherwise so what is the meaning of life according to snow country <laughs> if you could quickly <laughs> give us an answer i think to be in the moment to experience to experience firsthand not secondhand to be open. Yes. To be so open that the Milky Way can fall into you. We mean by this, we're speaking slightly metaphorically, but what you mean, I think, please correct me, of course, is to be so, you must let go of your own subjective prison. We, we all live in a prison of subjectivity. And Shimamura begins the novel, he spends most of the time, maybe all of the time, except for the very last sentence, trapped in this prison of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. He can't, he doesn't think about his kids. Except he remembers them when he's looking at dead bugs. Mm. He doesn't see these women as people. The landscape is mostly invisible to him, except in brief flashes. And I like when you talked about the mirrors. It reminds me of a a passage in Proust where he uh, Marcel says that Albertine, or actually uh, he says that sometimes people become mirrors to us of the things we want or desire. So we don't even see them at all. Right. We just see the things we want. And uh, I think that's that's Shimamura. So you, the meaning of life, according to this novel, is to let go of subjectivity. To see things as they are. To see the Milky Way as it is, to see humans as they are, to see mountains as they yes. are. This requires a kind of erasure of the self. Mm. Right? Doesn't it? Yeah. An erasure of the self. So instead of thinking... How does this affect me? What do I want? What can I get out of this? How How is everything in relation to me? Mm-hmm. Kind of Emerson's transparent eyeball. You simply allow yourself to see, and you are this kind of open um, force that things can pass through at will. Right. And that that takes some work. It takes some self-awareness, and it takes practice, I think, to stand next to, for example, your desire of something, and to be able to say, I'm over here, and that's a thing right. that I want. 
to even see that. That it, that desire is separate from you or separable. Yeah. That you're not actually, you can escape the prison of the self if you want to. Right. So, but, and it's wor- but that it's worth it. If you can do that, you can have, you can have the Milky Way within your soul. <laughs> this is the oneness, right? This is the Zen oneness. I mean, you realize that you are part of this grand cosmic system. There is also this gorgeous sense of mercy for me at the end. I feel like Shimamura doesn't really deserve it for all the reasons, you know, we've already talked about his character. He doesn't deserve this huge grand moment, but he gets it anyway. There's something so beautiful about that. I think it's a great moment of mercy where even somebody, because he's, he's not evil, he's just not likable and he's selfish, but, and lazy mentally, I think for the reasons we mentioned, and not open, but um, he, we can sometimes be shaken out of our sleep. We can sometimes be overcome by, by beauty, and I love those moments. I mean, I, I've had moments like that in nature that I didn't really feel like I deserved. Maybe I thought I was in my thoughts too much. Sometimes, you know, when we go through things, we, we can only see our own pain. We're so self-absorbed. Right. We might dislike Shimamura a little bit extra because it took the death of Yoko mm. for him to see this. But I like what you say about it's. this is accessible to everyone and mm. there is a kind of mercy. I think a reader could read this book, and I mean, I have had this attitude towards this book in the past where his character is so bored and so indifferent to everything around him, incapable of falling in love, detached from his family, Nothing, he finds no meaning, nothing matters to him, nothing that the other characters want they can achieve. We're all small dying bugs in this vast empty space. I've often wondered if this is a nihilistic book. But uh, in his Nobel acceptance lecture, Kawabata says this, In Zen there is no worship of images. Zen does have images, but in the hall where the regimen of meditation is pursued, there are neither images nor pictures of Buddhas, nor are there scriptures. The Zen disciple sits for long hours, silent and motionless, with his eyes closed. Presently he enters a state of impassivity, free from all ideas and all thoughts. He departs from the self and enters the realm of nothingness. This is not the nothingness or the emptiness of the West. It is rather the reverse, a universe of the spirit in which everything communicates freely with everything, transcending bounds, limitless, and the emphasis is less upon reason and argument than upon intuition, immediate feeling. Enlightenment comes not from teaching, but through the eye awakened inwardly. Mm. Truth is in the discarding of words. It lies outside words, and so we have the extreme of silence like thunder. So Mm. he knows, he's very aware that this could appear to a Western reader like nihilism, so he emphasizes that it's not, it's rather the opposite. It's the connection with an everything, the one everything of the universe, right? The, the eye awakened inward, is that what he said? Love that. The eye awakened inwardly. And when you awaken your eye inwardly, what should you see there? Well, the Milky Way, transcending bounds. You know, there's no difference between you and the Milky Way. And that is the least lonely sentiment I can think of. And that's why to me, this is not a nihilistic book at all. Sounds like a good place to end. Now for the writing prompt. 
As you heard in that chat, the first sentence of this novel is translated slightly misleadingly into English. Of course, we're grateful for the work of all translators, and both Claire and I love this translation a lot. It's a beautiful book, but I think it's important to keep this more literal translation in mind. Remember, literally speaking, the first sentence of the novel is, quote, passing through a long tunnel at the border, there was the snow country. So there's this kind of disembodied, dislocated perception of a scene. We don't know where we are. There's no mention of a train. There's no mention of a speaker or a character. Passing through a long tunnel at the border, there was the snow country. It's a sentence of transition and travel and journey, but it's also a sentence of kind of pure subjectivity or pure impression. I want you to think about starting a story with a sentence that is modeled on this first sentence. Use its basic syntax and structures, but change the location, change the details, change the nouns and the verbs. Do something like, passing through a long forest, there was the wide sea, or passing through a long dark canyon, there finally were the lights of the city, or passing through a long dark jungle, there at last was the interior. Or passing over to the other side of the mountain, there was, etc., etc. I think this is a gentle but very captivating way to start a story, ushering your reader into a world that seems familiar in a way, but also strange and distant. It's a sentence that can demarcate clearly the beginning of a narrative. We're leaving one place, and we're entering another place, and what will happen in that place we have yet to discover. The poem of the day is going to be three small poems of the day. I'm taking these poems directly from Kawabata's Nobel lecture. They're by a 13th century Zen Japanese poet whose name I'm, I've had a hard time learning how to pronounce. His name is spelt M-Y-O-E. I've tried searching for the correct pronunciation of this name. I'm not quite sure. It could be Meiyi. I don't quite know. But he was a Buddhist monk who lived from 1173 to 1232, who, among other things, wrote poems. Here are three of them that Kawabata refers to in his lecture. None of these three poems have titles. They are not quite haiku, not quite tanka, simply their own small thing. Here's the first. I shall go behind the mountain. Go there too, O moon. Night after night we shall keep each other company. Here's another. My heart shines, a pure expanse of light, and no doubt the moon will think the light its own. And here, this last one is definitely my favorite. It goes like this. Bright, bright, and bright, 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 and bright, bright. Bright and bright, bright, and bright, bright moon. Of course, this last poem is quite a strange poem. Strange because in translation, read as a series of sounds and words, much of its beauty is lost. It's a work of visual art as much as it is a poem. These, of course, are all written originally in Japanese calligraphy and are as beautiful to look at on the page as they are to hear. I would highly recommend that you seek out uh, visual versions of this, these poems, especially this latter poem, and you'll see it in a way that really adds a lot to these words.
That's it for now. Don't know when or what or if there will be a recording now for the next few weeks. There might be, uh, depending on whether or not Claire and I can carve out much time for reading. We hope so. But our new semester is coming up, new courses, new books, which I'm all really excited about. In the meantime, keep writing and keep reading. (laughs) 